The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. On today's deep dive episode, I had the opportunity to speak with the Emerald Sea Protection Society about the work that they're actually doing to clean up ghost gear, abandoned, lost, and damaged fishing gear that is out around the coast of Vancouver Island. Allie and Burton do awesome work, and their whole organization is really cool. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn a little bit about ghost fishing with the Emerald Sea Protection Society. Air. Wasser. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Low. Enzio. Nihu. Nihu. Nuri. Moda. Miri. Echi. Chai. Shui. Maji. What are we doing? And how can we do better? Your one-stop shop for everything water-related. From discussing water, its use, and the organisms that depend on it. For all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? Hi, and I'd like to welcome the next guest on the show. Could you guys both introduce yourselves and explain a little bit about what you do with the Emerald Sea Protection Society? Sure. I'll go first. Uh, my name is Burton Scott. I'm one of the founding members of the organization. I'm a commercial diver um, as well as a, a field person for, for this project. And I'm Ali Stocks. Uh, I'm a marine scientist and I started helping out with Emerald Sea maybe about four years ago uh, and am one of the uh, members of the board of directors. Awesome. Thanks, Allie and Burden, for joining in. So today we're going to chat a little bit about ghost nets and ghost gear and what the Emerald Sea Protection Society is doing off the coast of Vancouver Island. Can you explain what is a ghost net? What makes a net a ghost net? Uh, sure, I can answer that. Um, and a ghost net is any net that's lost or abandoned at sea or on land that makes its way into the sea either fishing or um, end of life, so at storage or something along those those lines. Uh, a ghost net will get lost in, in an area where it'll affect the, the natural marine environment, um, continuing to fish and <clears throat> baiting itself over years, uh, causing quite significant damage to uh, the local environments. Um, quite a big problem. 
from fishing. So they just are just like left out to sea. Are they left out to sea like intentionally? Are these just misplaced nets or is this more like ocean currents take them away? And is this just, is this a big problem with nets or are there other things too that, that are causing issues? Yeah, I'll jump in on that one. Um, It sort of depends on where you are in the world. Here in British Columbia, we generally speaking, do not have people intentionally discarding nets. Nets are worth tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and they're, yeah, very important to, to fishermen's livelihoods. Uh, so no one's, you know, just dumping their, their nets at sea. Um, so usually what, what happens is a uh, net can get snagged either on something under the water uh, you can have bad weather that leads to losing a net um, or losing sort of a set net. Uh, um, you could have gear interactions, so something getting caught on another piece of gear. Um, there's a number of reasons why they might get lost, uh, but generally speaking here, it's it's definitely not intentional. Okay, yeah, so there, these nets do cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you were asking too, so it's not just nets. We tend to think about nets as one of the most um, dangerous yeah. forms of, of ghost gear, one of the most um, uh, deadly or the type that's most likely to sort of keep having an impact. Um, but there's plenty of other types of gear that get lost, like uh, crab traps, um, lobster traps, mm-hmm. uh, more on the yeah. East Coast. Um, so the type of, of gear where you've got sort of a something on the bottom and then uh, a line attached and a float at the top. Uh, if you lose that float, um, then the the trap at the bottom is just going to continue to kind of uh, sit there uh, for who knows how long. All right. So if I understand correctly, and I have no, <laughs> I have no background in marine fishing whatsoever, but if I understand correctly, most of the gear out there, you unless it has a GPS signal. You rely basically on a visual. Uh, if you can see a buoy, then you know where that gear is. Yeah, that's pretty fair to say. Yeah, it varies based on the the different fisheries, and and usually people are pretty good about about knowing where they've set their gear. Um, yeah, and, if it costs getting, that much money. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and getting back there to retrieve it. Um, but uh, yeah, if you lose, if you can't see it, and if it's gone too far from from where you would have initially set it, then yeah, it's it's almost impossible to find it. <laughs> it's a big old sea out there. <laughs> How big of a problem? is this like how much would a typical fisher lose in a year and are is it is it more of an issue with certain types of gear that is an awesome question and the research <laughs> is still being done on that um and so we the department of fisheries and oceans here in canada has just started collecting that information so it's a tricky thing um where uh you, uh, a fisherman might not necessarily want to declare that they've lost mm. this gear uh, because of the negative implications. So even the even the right. term ghost gear or ghost net has negative connotations for the fishing industry. Um, and in no way do we want to vilify these people whose livelihood depends on the sea. Um, so mm-hmm. that's why often in in scientific literature uh, you'll see the term abandoned, lost, or discarded fishing gear. So ALDFG um, is the acronym. Well, that's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, people aren't 
aren't in obviously like we've we've said they're not intentionally losing it um but the data is pretty scarce about how often people are losing it where there might be gear hotspots um and and again this might be different based on the the fishery type um you know you're more like likely to lose probably a, a small uh crab pot than you might uh you know a gigantic seine net um hmm. but you know, these fisheries have been operating here for hundreds of years. Um, you know, ge- technology has improved. So in recent years, losing gear is is less common um, than it might have been, say, 50 years ago. Um, but this is something that we're actively tackling right now. And it's, it's something that I, as a scientist, am super interested in, because if we can understand how much gear we think is out there based on, you know, loss rates or, or likely places uh, of, of gear lots, that puts us in a, in a better position to actually go and retrieve it and, and start cleaning it up. Yeah, totally. I guess, so it is, it is a big problem, but it's, it's maybe becoming less of a problem as, as fishing gear improves. So I guess this is kind of where where your team comes in. So what can be done? How do you go about even starting to know where to look for these and how to how to begin to clean up these abandoned gear? Yeah, there's definitely a few approaches that we're we're trying to suss out at the point at this point. Um, the most successful that we've found so far is that, is word of mouth, like actually talking and working with fishermen mm. to identify areas where there is potential gear loss or legacy gear loss from the past. Um, in addition to that, there is some uh, outside of the fishing industry where we like DFO and um, and divers, for example, who have identified gear in other areas. But uh, there's it's pretty tough to uh, actually pinpoint hotspots right now. So definitely trying to work that out. Yeah, there's some some technologies that are being piloted um, like side scan sonar. So um, literally scanning the ocean floor to try and see if there's uh, gear. Um, And it's, it's been improving over, over the past few years, but generally speaking, it's, it's fairly costly to, to run Mm. these, these scanners um, and not necessarily the easiest to actually identify gear that's under the water. Um, Another tool that we use is um, remote-operated uh, cameras, so something that you can operate from onshore um, and and sort of survey under the water using. But even Very then, you cool. kind of yeah, yeah. But even then, you kind of want to have a general sense of of the the likelihood of, of a piece of gear being in that area because mm-hmm. you're not necessarily going to go out and just video, you know, yeah. our entire expansive coastline. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? We don't have time for that. We don't have enough I, money to go and do that. Gosh, that's what we would do if the, if there was all the money in the world. We'd be out there just just puttering <laughs> all day long. <laughs> I I, I, I should have started with it. I'm sorry, but I I just I'm so excited to have you guys on as guests because I think the work that you guys do is incredible. Just having an organization that is is out there actively trying to clean up and and putting in a lot of time and effort and money to be able to uh, have these positive impacts that may not be realized by people just on shore that there are these uh, abandoned fishing gear that are still still out there and and continue to fish without our knowledge so i'm so excited to be able to to chat with you guys about this and uh thanks for everything you guys are are doing 
<laughs> Thanks for those kind words. It, it sounds like it's such a it's such a cool experience to be able to go out and and be part of one of these expeditions that you guys go on, finding all this gear. Could you guys kind of walk me through what one of these trips out to sea would be like to be able to go and reclaim some of this gear and maybe share a story of one of the weirdest pieces of gear that you've ever pulled up? <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, well, it definitely takes a pretty significant effort. Just um, organizing uh, people and equipment alone takes quite a bit of time. Um, all of these sites that we do that aren't dock cleanups are are offshore, so you're looking at a you know one to several hour boat ride out to site, and then mm-hmm. weather depending and uh, site conditions, whether you actually get in the water and and do recovery is kind of based on all that stuff. Um, one of the ones that we we've been lucky enough to go back to is is just on the border of um, BC in the United States, uh, off of this island called Pender Island in the Gulf Islands, just uh, just next to Victoria, and that particular site is um, quite an interesting one because it's it's been uh, an ongoing project by several organizations. Uh, the that one particular net is just one seine net that was lost. Uh, estimated around, um, I think it was the 80s, where it was found initially by some divers. Wow. It, it's taken the better part of a five-year sort of effort by three different groups to go back and clean up that one particular net just because it's, uh, it's deep and the conditions are very challenging. So just being part of that cleanup and the effort to tackle that one, that one specific site uh, was a bit of an eye-opener for me anyway to uh to kind of you know forge forward and and continue to try to find places like that that need to be uh restored back to their their natural environment wow it can take up to wow five years for one net is it just such a huge net or are you saying the conditions were or just make it really difficult to pull it up well each one of those projects is a one or two day sort of on-site significant effort sort of thing so um our part initially was actually more of a training position where we're we're learning how to go out and and recover nets uh safely and effectively so um we were we were kind of piggybacking on another crew and and working with the triple gi as a a collaborate uh, collaborative effort to uh to get an a canadian effort started um so that was kind of our initial push into it um, and then we've gone back several other times to to remove other just remaining pieces of the net. Um, but that again, that particular site's almost uh, like an average depth of eighty feet. So we we don't have a whole lot of time uh, on the bottom to do much work. So even even finding the pieces of the net that are left, which are some some pretty significant pieces but for the most part it's it's been mostly cleaned up it has been a bit of a challenge but uh that particular site is is getting close to completely finished so it's kind of that last little push you know (laughs) totally totally yeah and maybe for a bit more of the sort of what logistically does a day look like burton lives this every day as a commercial diver but it's um maybe people don't realize the water in BC is, is pretty cold, uh, usually around, you know, eight degrees Celsius at, it, as, at its warmest. Uh, so as, <laughs> yeah, that's as, chilly enough. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so we're in full, you know, dry suits, you've got a ton of equipment and weight. Um, 
And, you know, we have to have a surface crew that is ensuring safety for all the divers that are underwater. Uh, We need at least two divers, usually more. um, And ideally, um, you know, having um, actual communications between the divers and the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, So some pretty neat technology. Um, And then depending on the, the size of the equipment that we're trying to pull up so so for example this seine net which you can imagine like the a full size seine net is like a football field like they're they're massive um yeah so so it's you know you can't just be out there in a canoe right so you also need uh a boat and and equipment to to actually pull that net out of the water um so the divers themselves can use controlled ways to do it under the water or or lift the net from under the water uh but then you know once you have more of a force of gravity you need uh the right equipment topside to actually remove that gear so there's some pretty (laughs) incredible imagery uh from some of the the projects all over the world of these just full like net balls like these things the size of houses of of gear that's accumulated and and you really need impressive you know full-on industrial equipment or uh, um like uh machinery to actually pull yeah. that out of the water yeah yeah that's incredible i've seen some of those images of those giant balls of nets and it, it's it's hard to get a sense of scale on them because mm-hmm. they're just so large yeah so so i mean we haven't found anything like that yet but i have spoken with fishermen, you know, of, of rumors of places like that on our coast. So it's, it's certainly on the, the to-do list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a big, big task when you come up on one of those, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So could you tell me a little bit about the Emerald Sea Protection Society and how it got started, how it got formed and what's next for the society? Yeah, sure. So the idea for going out and, and tackling the lost fishing gear on uh, the BC coast came from me just seeing it at work. Uh, diving for work, I was even on job sites that weren't even related to fishing. I would see fishing gear or marine debris in general. So um, I started talking with uh, a few friends and, and we kind of formed together to to uh, tackle the problem as we could. And that's where Emerald Sea was started about four, four, uh, five years ago, six years. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it started with that and, and fishing gear was a, an obvious sort of target because um, as I see it anyway, in BC, our, our gear loss are so minimal now because of changes in technology and, and effort from fishermen and, and regulation that, um, the problem, at least within the confined seas like the Salish Sea behind Vancouver Island, it's a, it's a solvable issue where we can clean up legacy fishing gear and tackle the gear that's lost yearly um, with a with a you know significant effort, obviously. But it's it's one of those benchmarks that could potentially be be reached. So um, over that period of time, we've we've been building towards that goal. Um, small initially and, and growing kind of every year and hopefully get to the point where we do have uh, more than one sort of uh, mobile crew to go out and, and recover gear uh, diving or otherwise and just be a, a part of that uh, that solution in, in BC. That's awesome. That's so cool. If I was out on the coast, I would definitely be very intrigued to be involved. 
with all of this this gear that is out there and from the gear that you guys have have been able to to remove is there any possibility for it to have a second life is there any usefulness to it typically or is this mostly being converted to like landfill or something at that point it depends on the type of net um there are some really amazing um businesses that are creating you know skateboards sunglasses bathing suits you name it out of uh, yeah out of lost fishing gear you gotta look up uh boreo um and uh, very cool i'll have to look them up yeah so that's certainly um where we want to get to right now we don't necessarily have uh, the supply of nets to be able to um, go into processing and creating, you know, bracelets or, or whatever it is. Um, for now, um, the nets that we've retrieved, um, we've used some for display purposes. We've sent them to other people who um, are, you know, making art projects or, or bracelets. One of the most recent ones, uh, she wants to make dog collars out of the nets. Um but in short, it depends on the, the type of uh, fiber of the net. So most of them are made with a pretty hardy nylon that's actually very recyclable. Um, but the the flip side to that is uh, having a net that's been under the water for 50 years, like the same net off of Pender we were talking about, that's a pretty nasty net. So mm-hmm. it, it takes quite a bit of work to actually clean it. Um, there is a, a net recycling facility uh, in Steveston, so just south of Vancouver, um, and there are a few, you know, uh, pilot projects across the coast to introduce net collection areas or, or recycling sort of facilities. Uh, so we're excited to see some of those come online in the next five years or so. Um, but yeah, it's it's the ultimate goal is is for these to not end up, you know, just sitting in a landfill. Um, so we, mm-hmm. we do our best to make sure that they they have a, a new life wherever possible. Turning it into a skateboard, or <laughs> that's that's crazy. I'm gonna have to look all of those up, yeah, uh, and I'll have to add them to the show notes so people can try to buy their next skateboard from an old abandoned fishing net. That's very very cool. So uh, that kind of leads me into the next question. So I'm in Alberta. I'm in a landlocked province in Canada. What would be your advice for people who may be in landlocked provinces or maybe not, not even landlocked provinces in uh, anywhere within Canada? How can we help? What would be your recommendation? I can jump in. We yeah. um, There's lots <laughs> of different ways. So it depends. It's so funny. I think, um, you know, people love being hands-on um, and... Uh, beach cleanups are a way that people can get involved. It might not always be fishing gear, but that's genuinely a way where you can, you know, feel like you're physically doing something to remove Mm -hmm. marine debris. So I always want to plug those. Um, In terms of supporting us as Emerald Sea, um, you know, we always accept financial donations and that will literally lead to us going out and pulling nets out of the water. Um, If you are extra keen, you know, reach out and and there might be volunteer opportunities with the organization. There's always stuff that can be done um, behind the scenes, whether it's, you know, helping with social media or some of our logistics, that sort of thing. Um, You know, we're we're stoked to to welcome new members. Um, As a Canadian in general, uh, one thing I always recommend is is being informed about the seafood that you consume. Um, So knowing where your seafood comes from, um, making sure that it is, um, you know, certified as 
ocean-wise uh, or by the Marine Stewardship Council. Even better if you can get your fish from a community-supported fishery like Skipper Autos in Vancouver, which del- delivers actually to Alberta, I'm pretty sure. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so getting to know you know who your fisherman is and, and where your seafood comes from uh, can be a really powerful way that you as a consumer can actually um, be a part of uh, better ways to treat the ocean. Um, so those are just a few. Bert, do you have any other ideas? Yeah, well, definitely get involved. Any, and even outside of uh, beach cleanups, just plastics in general and, and uh, community involvement and, and education, spreading, spreading the word. Um, but you pretty much hit all those, those points. Awesome. Ali, actually, I'm uh, one of the other episodes in this initial series of podcast episodes is focusing on food fraud in fish, fish mislabeling within Canada. And so it kind of speaks to your point about following those seafood verifications. Oh, that's awesome. Good. I'm glad your your listeners will, will learn all about that. I'm, I'm very passionate about that as well. <laughs> Yes, I sent some samples off to the Life Lab Center in Guelph to be DNA tested to see if it actually is what it says on the package. So fingers crossed, we'll see what happens with those samples. <laughs> Amazing. That's kind of all the questions I can think of right now for you guys. I'm, I'm so excited that we had this chance to talk. Where can people find out more about your work and follow what you guys do and be able to support you guys? Yeah, we are. Um, you can go to our website, which is... Uh, emeraldseasociety.ca um, and we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram also all just Emerald Sea Society um, yeah and I think I think there's a, a donation button on our webpage still <laughs> I'm checking right now <laughs> <laughs> I believe there is <laughs> yep top right top right top right you heard it here first folks Uh, (laughs) well thank you so much Allie and Burton for your time and the important work that you guys do and is there anything else that you guys want to say before we uh, we end this little segment thank you so much for having us it was great to chat and yeah uh, if anyone has questions uh, we're always around and happy to answer them and we're so excited um, that you know Canadians from uh, across this, you know, beautiful great land can can get involved and, and stay interested in, in this kind of thing, even if you don't live right on the ocean. <laughs> Perfect. We're imagining it from Edmonton. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Check the show notes. I'll leave some links to the Emerald Sea Protection Society's website and to their social media. Even just a couple days ago, they were pulling nets out of the ocean, posting some really cool photos. So highly recommend it. Go check it out. Also in the show notes, I'll leave some links to some of the repurposed gear that's built from old fishing gear. So definitely check out those cool companies as well. Thanks so much to Allie and Burton for taking time out of their busy schedules cleaning up our oceans to speak with me. Keep up the great work, Emerald Sea Protection Society. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes coming out. Leave us a rating and a review. It means so much to us to hear back from all of our listeners. 
I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I would just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Polman, Sophie Cervera, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Get excited for next Monday when we release our next episode all about seawater desalination. We talk to Heather Cooley from the Pacific Institute about water stress, how many cities across the world are actually about to run out of water, and how seawater desalination might be able to help. Thanks for listening to the What Are We Doing podcast. And until next time, it's been a splash.